follow me, you whispered in my deep pain, but I can't imagine how. I've rejoiced on the mountaintops with you, but when you call me through the valleys, I can't see my own feet in front of me, and I'm left with no choice but to cling to you. Journeying through dark places dictates that I must trust you. Follow me was what you said to the disciples as they abandoned you, scattering into the darkness as you headed to the grave. And I realize I can trust you because you didn't stay there and you loved your disciples no matter what as you still do. Even in my darkest night, you shine as the day. In my hopeless situation, I remember how many hopeless situations you've conquered. That indeed, the only way out of the hopelessness is to listen as you say, follow me. Well, good morning. Great to see you this morning. And uh, man, you got a little spring fever going? It's awful nice out there. And uh, that makes me appreciate you being in here even that much more. Uh, that's pretty special. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, spending most of our time there today as we continue a series. Uh, we've, we've called it Follow Me. And, um, you know, when we started our series uh, together, we, I, I shared a name with you, and I'm sure it wasn't a familiar name, Ernest Blandy. Uh, back in 1890, he's the one that composed the hymn that you might be familiar with, Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow. Uh, and you look at the verses of that hymn, he includes uh, such phrases like, I'll, I'll follow you, Lord, to the garden. I'll follow you through the judgment. I'll follow you to dark Calvary. And as I mentioned back then, a few weeks ago, that I don't think I've ever been inspired for a sermon series by a hymn but this one kind of kicked me a little bit because I started thinking of the sequence that he was talking about and would we go with Jesus? Would we go with him to the garden? Would we go with him uh, before Caiaphas's house and the hypocrisy that was there and Pilate and all the pressure that was there and then ultimately to Calvary? And so that's what kind of gave birth to this series. And so we spent the first few weeks uh, looking at uh, the disciples, their first calling and, and some of the exciting things that they went through and now we're gonna turn a corner uh, talking about the garden, the garden of, of Gethsemane. Man, I, so I appreciated Wendell and what he shared and just uh, the, the, the personal testimony. He's a true disciple of the Lord because he truly fell asleep in the garden of Gethsemane, just like a disciple. <laughs> and uh, I, I appreciated that uh, transparency that was there. Now, to be honest with you, I fell asleep that day too, uh, over in my little corner where I was at. Uh, it was very, very peaceful and very quiet. And we hope uh, today as we travel there that you're gonna experience some of what Christ and his followers did. And so uh, we've got some Bibles available. Uh, if you'd like to take advantage of that, you'll see ushers making those available. We, uh, we've been following these disciples. Here's my challenge each week is to put yourself in the place of a first century disciple. Uh, especially those 12 that we know as the apostles. The, those guys who were called out. Remember they were ordinary fishermen. It was a very special thing that Jesus put his finger and he said, would you follow me? That was a privilege for them because nobody had ever really treated them that way before. They, they were kind of the cast-offs. They were already doing their father's business and uh, a vocational life and, and they didn't meet the, the grade. They didn't, they didn't pass the cut uh, to become a follower of a rabbi and Jesus invited them in. He took them to some of the most amazing places and events that you can even imagine. Think about what it was like to be in a boat with a sea uh, so tumultuous that it was about ready to swamp you out and Jesus calms the sea. That's authority. Uh, lame persons, paralyzed, that are, are able to walk for the first time. 
The blind are seen for the first time in their life. And the dead are raised. We talked about Jairus' daughter, remember? And right before their eyes, and they're seeing all these things. And I want you to take you to that place because in the first few months and years of, of them following Jesus, it was a very exciting, a very exhilarating time. Uh, the crowds were beginning to swell. They weren't just a few handful. There were thousands that were gathering. His reputation was going before him. People from all around the surrounding territories, uh, the, the cities, the large cities were called the Decapolis. There were 10 Roman cities that were nearby, and these are where the thousands would likely have come from. So these were pagans, man. These, these were folks that didn't really have a clue, but they heard the reputation, and they wanted to see it with their own eyes. You're a disciple of Jesus, very popular, and don't you suppose that there was a little bit of pride that was going along with being associated with him? Their chest would stick out a little bit and say, we're, we're one of his disciples. And that's, that's kind of where life was at, at that point. But it was about to change very dramatically. And that's where we're gonna take you today. And I want you to put yourself in that place and once again ask the question, would I follow him even now? So let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll take you there. Lord, in these next few minutes that we get to share together, I just pray that your word will come alive. It'll speak to us at our point of need. And especially, Lord, those whom you may have drawn to this place today that have a heavy heart, maybe a burden that they are carrying, that they need to take before you and leave at your feet. I pray today that faith will grow and that uh, we will see ourselves uh, in a fresh dimension of, of following you that maybe we've not been taken to before. But we, in our heart of hearts, are gonna come to a place of complete and total surrender. Lord, I will follow you. I'll follow you even to the garden. So we commit this to you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You know, um, I was sharing a previous service. I, I can't think of too many things in my life where I'd say I've never done that. Uh, I've, I've, I've had a lot of experiences, and, and prior to knowing Christ, some of the things I'm not very proud of, but I, there's very few things that I have not done, um, but one of those is I've never played the lottery before, all right? And, and this week, I, I actually thought about it. <laughs> I, was at, I, was at the waiting, I was waiting in line to check out at QFC, and I, it took a little longer than normal, and I was looking over at the machine, and I saw these people streaming to this machine and putting five and tens and twenties into this, this Powerball with the hopes of winning the $750 million jackpot. Now, I had enough time in line that I, my mind began to wander a little bit, and I'm just watching them, and I'm thinking, what, what would that be like to suddenly come across a windfall of $465 million. That's after taxes, right? That's what it comes out to. I checked. <laughs> <laughs> what, would it be, what would it be like? And I, I just kind of went to this place and I, th I just thought, that'd be a test. That would be quite a test. I thought, really, what, what would it be like if I came and go, and I started talking to the Lord, and I said, you know, I'd probably give it all away, or at least most of it, 90%, um, let's say. <laughs> and, and I just kept watching, and I thought, 
I thought, could, could I handle that kind of a test? And then I talked to the Lord and I said, Lord, you know, I'd be willing to be tested like that. <laughs> well, just to calm your nerves, okay, I did not succumb. I didn't, I, didn't, I thought, if I just put a dollar in, maybe, Lord, you'll pick the numbers and you'll test me and, you know, all these kind of things. But I, I walked away. You know, there's, we've, we've said before, you can't walk on water unless you get out of the boat, right? Well, you can't win the lottery unless you buy a lottery ticket. Uh, so to, to walk away, but, but the thought was interesting. What kind of a test that would be? I bring that up because I thought, these disciples that we're talking about and trying to identify with, They're about to be tested in a way that they cannot even imagine, at a depth that that they they couldn't even begin to picture. Like I mentioned, up to this point, they're, they're kind of enjoying the popularity, the fame of Jesus, the very positive climate that he was at. People were flocking to hear him, and yet, um, and yet that, that was all about to change. And when did it change? For me, the the pivotal moment is when he began to use this phrase, okay, now it's time for us to go up to Jerusalem. Up to Jerusalem. And that wasn't just kind of a casual phrase that he was throwing out there. There was was a a lot of thought, a lot of, of, of a backdrop to that when he said that, at the time he said that. Because I think the disciples knew a few things. They had some things settled. Number one, I think they knew that he was the Messiah. I don't think they were doubting that much anymore. They'd seen what he'd done. They knew the prophecies. They'd heard the voice of God. They'd been on the mountain of transfiguration. All these things now are behind them. They know he's the Messiah. These guys knew their Bibles too. Now they say they're unschooled fishermen, but friends, they knew the basics of the Bible. They knew the premise, and especially the verses that we call the Messiah, the Messianic prophecies that every Jew longed for. And they wouldn't be among those. And their expectation of the Messiah was, was simply this. He was going to be like a king. He was going to be a ruler or a conqueror, kind of like Alexander the Great. And he was the one that was going to lead the Jews who up to this point were being oppressed by these Roman occupiers. He was going to be the one to set them free from all of that. They had that expectation. How do we know that? Because they literally said, Jesus, near the end, right at the time we're talking about, Jesus, now, is now the time you're gonna set up your kingdom? Is now the time all this is gonna go? Remember, they were asking, can we be on your right hand and your left hand, you know? Can we be, you know, kind of your main guys, your vice president, you know, your, the, the ones that's right by you? This is what their thoughts were. And Jesus said, we're going up to Jerusalem. Now, I wanna take you to some scriptures. This idea is in all four gospels. And if you have your notes in front of you, I want you to glance with me, uh, Matthew's version, uh, chapter 20. He says, and Jesus, as he was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Guys, if he, if he would have spoke that to you, would, would you have comprehended what he, was, what he was saying there? I mean, that's pretty straightforward. And yet it doesn't fit the image, the expectation that they had in their mind of this conquering ruler, right? So it just didn't, it didn't register to them completely. Okay, that's Matthew's version. 
Mark, which we believe is probably the earliest of the Gospels, okay, this was the first one probably that was, was recorded, he recorded it this way. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, much like Matthew's version, okay? So now he's describing them on their way up. Two words. They were amazed. They were astonished at, at what they saw with Christ ahead, but they also were afraid. Why were they afraid? You're one of those disciples. Why, why would you be afraid at this point? Maybe we get a clue from John's gospel because he couches this episode in the, uh, the events of Lazarus, who was gonna be raised from the dead, you remember? The me- they were up in the Galilee, north of Jerusalem, you know, about 90 miles north. The message gets to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is ill, very ill, he need to come. And Jesus curiously waits, he doesn't, he doesn't go anywhere, and then, then come to find out when he gets there, he actually has died. Well, this is how Jesus put it. He says, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you might believe. What he's saying, because he died, now you're gonna actually see him raised from the dead. Now, Lazarus lives in Bethany, which is just right on the backside of the Mount of Olives, okay? So in, in essence, to go to, to Lazarus or to go that way, that's, he's going to Jerusalem and they knew that this was probably not a good idea because the tide was changing. They knew that the religious leaders, the establishment, did not like Jesus. And they were beginning to plot for ways in which to get rid of him. It was becoming dangerous to be a follower of Christ. They knew that. And that's why Thomas, also called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So does that give you a a clue as to the the mood that was happening? You're climbing up to Jerusalem. Literally, uh, Jericho, which is the last of the, the cities before you begin that climb, is 900 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem's about 2,500 feet above sea level, so it's almost a 3,500 foot climb in about an 11 to 12 mile stretch. So it's a, it's a haul upwards. And as I was walking through this, and this is something I just want to pass on to you because you know, I prepare these messages somewhat in advance, but yet the Lord's constantly getting ready for the delivery. Some things happened a couple of days ago, just two or three days ago, that, that I didn't have in your notes necessarily, but I just I need to pass it on to you because I'm living with this, and I'm trying to imagine myself you know, going up with him. And I caught a little detail in Mark's record. He said, Jesus was leading the way. That's what the NIV says. The ESV says, Jesus was walking ahead of them. And the rest of them were kind of back, astonished and afraid. Jesus is changing kind of right before their eyes. He's, he's been their buddy, he's been their friend, they've been camping out together, he teaches them, he's constantly debriefing with them, he's with them, he's with them, he's with them. Now there's this little detail, now he's walking ahead of them. They're not in this familiar, you know, buddy-buddy mode, and he's, he's walking ahead of them. And 
I just started to think about this, and Luke's gospel, in fact, uh, in chapter nine, that's the other, the fourth of gospel, here's how Luke describes it. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. And as I was thinking about this just a, just a couple of days ago, the word that kind of came, I, I heard it somewhere, that his face was like flint. He set his face like flint. A flint, I, looked at, I went to look at this up, and a flint is a hard, hard rock. And it, so it's basically saying he, he was like resolved, he was determined, there was, there was nothing that was gonna change his mind. And I can picture him now just plowing up the hill. These guys are huffing and puffing, you know, because it's a climb, and they're trying to keep up with him. But man, he's on his way to Jerusalem. His face is like flint. And then something unexpected happened for me. Where did that, that phrase come from, his face like flint? And it took me back into the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 50. And I, I don't know that I'd ever seen this before, but when I began to read this and to think, 800 years before all this transpires, this is a, 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 a messianic prophecy that Jesus no doubt would have understood specifically, and I believe even the disciples were familiar with this. And here's how it reads. Verse four, Isaiah 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. This is the future talking about the coming Messiah. This is what he's gonna be like. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens to my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Is this sounding familiar? But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like garment. The moth will eat them up. Jesus is reading these words. He knows what's ahead of him, and he sets his face like flint. And this took me to a place of just wondering, what kind of resolve did that take for him to stay on that path, knowing what God's will was? Friends, it wasn't in the moment. Let's go back three years earlier when he launched his ministry. He'd just been baptized and he was ushered out into the desert, remember? Satan was tempting him, took him to a mountain and he says, he shows him the whole world and he says, I'll give you all of this if you'll just bow down and worship me. But Jesus didn't succumb. His closest friend, Peter, when Jesus said, I'm gonna have to go to the cross, I'm gonna die on the cross, Peter says, I won't let that happen to you. Does anybody recall what Jesus did in response? He says, get behind me, Satan, because he knew what the source of that kind of thinking was. It was trying to get him off course. 
derail him from what he knew was his calling. And then when it comes to carrying it out, think about it, guys. The Bible says that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. And how would you feel about dying for somebody who could care less whether you were dying for them? Wouldn't that kind of discourage you from going through with it? And then if that's not enough, you could have called down 10,000 angels to save you in the moment. Think how easy it was for him to get out of the mess that he was in. And so often we pray, oh Lord, get, get me out of this mess. Take this away from me. That's how we pray. Jesus was resolved, though, because he knew what the will of the Lord was. And he set his face like flint. Nothing was going to stop him. He was determined. His face was like flint. And these guys are standing back watching, amazed at what is, what is unfolding. And I, it, it just causes me to pause and wonder what kind of things, what kind of things keep me from carrying out uh, what God has clearly disclosed is his plan or his will for, for my life, especially when it begins to shift over into that realm, what we call suffering, okay? And so they're determined, and he goes, he goes, uh, he goes to Jerusalem. He enters the city, as you call, on Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday when he's on a donkey and he rides in, and everybody's yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're celebrating him. But oh, how the tide turned just within a few days. He was teaching. He would come in and then kind of go back out and go back in and go back out, and things be began to really escalate at that point with these religious rulers, and they were determined to get rid of him. And... Later that week on Thursday night before the Passover, they're having their dinner. We call it the upper room. We call it the Last Supper. And that's where, uh, of course, we get our ideas of communion and the bread and the cup. And he instructs them extensively on what's about to happen and how the Holy Spirit, this counselor, is going to come. And you're not going to be left like orphans, but I am going to leave you guys, and you're not going to be able to go with me. That was a bombshell for them, okay? And they're very unsettled. That's why chapter 14 of John starts off, let not your heart be troubled. Because they were, agit they were worried. What does this mean? What's going on here? And then they get up from the table and they go, go across the Kidron Valley. And there's this little tiny brook that goes through that valley. And some have suggested at this time, because it was Passover and all the sacrifices that were taking place and just the thousands of animals that were being you know, cut open, that the blood from that, this was the drainage ditch and it would have been red with the blood of the sacrifices, and it was that brook that he crossed to go up to Gethsemane. That's how we get to Gethsemane. And I want to take you there. And, and you know, this, this resolve reached an apex. It reached kind of a crescendo. He, there was no greater struggle with him to carry out the will of the Father than what we see disclosed in those few uh, minutes that he spent in prayer at Gethsemane. It's on the side of the, the mountain. We call it the Mount of Olives because it's covered with olive groves. It, it apparently is one of Jesus' favorite places. Uh, I think it was because of the proximity. From that vantage point, you look over the city of Jerusalem. You're away from the hustle and bustle and chaos, but yet you, you see it. That's why he said, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem. And it was probably from that vantage point he's praying over uh, God's, God's plan for them. I want to take you there, and I just want to lift out a few things to think about 
what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you're one of his followers, okay? And it starts off in chapter, um, Matthew describes it. He's the one that uses the word Gethsemane. He says he took one of his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here, uh, and I'm gonna go over there and pray. Uh, as you can see you know, from the note, Gethsemane literally means oil press. And wherever there would be a, a, an abundance of olive trees, then the owners would have a, a press because they wanted to turn the olives into something that was useful, something productive, something profitable, right? Um, recently on our trip, we, we go to a little place called the Nazareth Village, which kind of takes you back to that first century Nazareth, and they have an old olive press set up. And our, um, our guide uh, was, was explaining to us that there are actually three steps that these olives would go through. The first one, when they were pressed by these huge stones that would go around, you know, the, a donkey or some kind of thing would pull it around and crush these, these olives. The first thing that came out was the purest. They call it the virgin olive oil. This is the purest and the best. That was the first step. The second one was kind of the second phase, and it was kind of the second best. Uh, and that would be the oil that next would be pressed. It would become the kind that they'd cook with, so that they used it for food. They used it for sustenance. Okay? And then the last one, when you had all this other stuff mixed in and all the residuals and everything, it was the worst of it, but that's what they would use for the lamps to light their, their homes, these little lamps that they put the oil, and, and it, uh, it, would, it would bring brightness to their home. And the person brought an interesting insight. Isn't, isn't it interesting that Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, the oil press, and he was pressed, and every last drop was pressed out of him, literally, under that pressure and the purity that Christ exhibited. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, we don't have a high priest that hasn't gone through the struggles or hasn't gone through uh, the things or is, or is weak. We've got one that has been tested in every way and yet without sin. Jesus was the pure sacrifice. And, and the bread of life, he was the source of our sustenance. He's our food, right? And, and, and that represented that. And then, of course, the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And guys, why was he so determined to do this? I just have to tell you, it's because he knew this was the only way that you and I would be saved from our sins. It's the only thing that could result in our forgiveness of sin. It had to be a pure, perfect sacrifice, a lamb of God without blemish. That's the only thing that would satisfy a holy God. And Jesus is the only one that could do that and the only one that did do that. That's what separates Jesus from every other religion, every other religious leader. There's none other like him. He's set apart completely. And all of this kind of transpired in this place we call the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? So what, what is this place? Let me just walk you through. First of all, it is a place of supplication. It was a place where he made his request, where he would talk to God. And as I point out in verse 39, now we're in Luke 22, if you did go turn there, would you just glance at that verse 39 with me? Um, it says, he came out and he went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. Don't miss that point. This was, this was something he, he loved to do. This was something that was his custom. It, it was a familiar place with him. He, he was 
comfortable going before God. And I just challenge you to think about that. Are you comfortable to go before God? How often do you find yourself carving out those times to be alone with God and to just draw from him and talk to him as a friend to a friend? This is what Jesus' normal thing was. And so it's pointed out, this is where he would go to God with those uh, requests and to to go through the battle that we're about to see uh, unfold. And so it was a place of, of, uh, of supplication. A second thing I noticed, it was a place of solitude. You notice when he talked about this, it said, he took his disciples with him, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and then he knelt down and prayed. So even his close companions are, are at a distance, but he pulls off so that he could be kind of by himself. I thought about this because at that time, at the Passover, some have suggested that the population of Jerusalem would swell two to three times. Uh, people came from all over the world at that point to be there for the Passover. That was the big celebration, right? And so where would they stay? It never dawned on me, but they basically camped out. And this was the, the perfect place among the groves and the trees and the protection there overlooking the city. And so probably... Uh, it wasn't as quiet as it usually was, but Jesus withdrew to that, that solitary place to talk to the Father. When the, Jesus asked, when the disciples asked him, teach us how to pray, Lord. Would you, just, would you show us how to do this? One of his instructive points was find a place and get alone with God. He called it a, a closet, like a secret place to where you can pull away. Listen to the message. This is a paraphrase Uh, But uh, he says, here is what I want you to do. Find a quiet place, secluded place, so that you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can imagine. The focus will shift from you to God, and you will begin to sense his grace. And so... um, you know, you wonder, well, why, why is that so important? Guys, would you agree that probably one of the greatest challenges to your prayer life is distractions? Once you try to carve out of trying to get alone with God, do you find the phone rings or the cat starts screeching or uh, somebody comes to the door or, you know, any number of things. But the enemy just goes crazy when you try to pull away and be alone with God. I share the story about um, a well-known Christian figure Susanna Wesley. She was the mother of John Wesley, who's the founder of the Methodist Church, and also Charles Wesley, who's a great hymn writer. Two of her 10 kids changed the the whole climate, the whole landscape of Christianity back in the late 1700s. And uh, yet she had 10 kids. Uh, She was the wife of the vicar of Epworth, and so that was was her life. And you can only imagine the the commotion and everything. I don't know what your excuse is, but she knew she needed to get time alone with God, and you know what she had to do? They say that she would take her apron and she'd pull it over her head, and then she was alone with God. And the kids knew when they saw mom with the apron over her head, you don't mess with her. You don't interrupt because she's spending time alone with God. What does it take for you? What's it take for me to do that? But Jesus said this is, this is really an important thing is that we draw away, that's what he modeled for us. Now, we know things got tough. We can't even hardly begin to fathom what Jesus was enduring in this moment, and it was a place of sorrow. It becomes very clear. 
in verse 44. He says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I've heard some explain that maybe the small corollaries, the veins and things like that, under the pressure, they began to explode, and, and literally, it looked like red drops of blood. I'm not sure if that was the case, because when I read this, it says it's more like it was like. It was like drops of blood. Blood just has this nature of, of just big drops and because of the thickness. And he says, there, there was something going on here that was intense. That's all that really is describing there. And he says, and then when he rose from the prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Your friends, who you're depending on probably more now than you ever have for their support, they've fallen asleep. I can identify with that. <laughs> it's a very calm and peaceful place. And they were weary, but it says they were weary from sorrow. Remember I told you he had just dropped a bombshell on them? Things were about to change. And, and they were trying to process all this and try to imagine, and they just fell asleep. It was, they were tired. Jesus went back, and three times he asked the Father, Father, if there's any other way, could you let this cup pass from me? Now, let's go back to a few moments ago. I was describing the resolve that he had. His face was like flint, right? But now in the garden, that once again, finally is being tested at a level that we can't even begin to fathom. And he's, he's pleading with God, is there any other way, is there any other plan that could transpire here? I know what's ahead. And I just wanna tell you guys, in your, in your time of praying, in your time of going before the Lord, more often than not, would you not agree that our prayers are in times, let's say it's in a crisis, and, and the pressure of those times is because you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe you've been to the doctor, and they said we need to take some tests, there's something suspicious, and uh, you do the, go through the test, and it's seven days before they're gonna tell you what the answers uh, or the results of the tests are. What do you do in those seven days? You pray, right? But your prayer kind of has a notion, what if? And all of a sudden your mind begins to drift to all these possibilities, right? That's a certain kind of pressure. That's not the kind of pressure Jesus endured. Jesus, his pressure was because he did know what was about to happen. It was very clear to him. And that's what, what led it to the next step, and that was Nevertheless, your will be done. Not my will, but your, your will be done. And I say it's a place of surrender. It was a time where Jesus, as he always taught the disciples, he goes, I came not to do my own will, I came to do the will of my Father who sent me. That goes way back in the early stages of their, of their time together. I'm here to do the will of God, but now ultimately he is surrendering and, and becoming one with what he knew was inevitable, and that was to lay his life down for you and me so that we could receive the forgiveness of our sins, a place of surrender. He comes to the end of this, and, and there's one last little step, and maybe you've not noticed this before, but, but Luke records that, or excuse me, uh, yeah, uh, he records that there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. 
And so in this moment, Jesus is wrestling with the Father about carrying out this ultimate agenda, the plan to, to be the Savior of the world. He's coming to terms with it, but God, out of his mercy, he sends an angel to encourage him and to speak to him. Now, I'm speculating a little bit, and I'll just acknowledge that. But I, I shared a message last week with you about how do we grow in greater faith. And if you were here, you recall I took you to Moses, and the time alone that Moses spent with God was part of that ingredient. A second thing was he spent time in the Word. And it was that Word, just knowing, it wasn't the literal Bible like we have because it hadn't been written like that. Moses wrote five, the first five books, but he recounted Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and God's activity. So he derived strength from the word and faith from the word, and then even from others, the church. We call it the church, but, but he, he needed other people. And, and Jesus looked to his disciples for that. They didn't help him much. But I want to go back to the word. Is it possible that the strength and the help that Jesus got to endure the cross and to, and to, to be ultimately resolved to carry that plan out as gruesome and as tragic and as, as awful as it was that he, he set his face like flint because the word of God that we just read a few moments ago was once again recounted. Can I read it again for you? Verse six of, of Isaiah 50. He says, I know I'm gonna give my back to be beaten and, and, and my beard's gonna be plucked out and I'm gonna be spit upon. There's gonna be disgrace. Verse seven but the Lord God helps me. The Lord God helps me. I tell you, if I would have been in that moment, that word would have just leaped off the page. It's God that's gonna be my help. And not just once, but verse nine. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, they're all gonna wear out like a garment. All these accusations that we're gonna look at the next couple of weeks, all this stuff that was being hurled at him, the Lord God was going to be his help. And he was strengthened in that moment. But here's something I saw a couple of days ago. It just, it really took me back. And I, I imagine Jesus literally, not necessarily reading this, he, he probably had this memorized, right? But he knew these words. And, and literally, as he's praying, his disciples are over here asleep, he gets up off of his knees and he walks over to his disciples, the Bible said, and he says, come on guys, wake up, let's go. It's time. My betrayer's coming. We can hear him. And he can hear these soldiers, this commotion. Not too far away. John described it in his gospel in chapter 18. He said, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and the torches and the weapons. That was a picture. Jesus has just spent time in the word of God, written 800 years before this moment. And you know what the next verse says in verse 10? Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. 
Would that have encouraged you? God predicted this very moment and the scene that we're seeing unfold, he predicted that 800 years before it transpired. And Jesus would have read that, and I think knowing it was the word of God, that this is God's plan, his timeless, his eternal plan, it was unfolding right now. He went out with a face like flint, and he said, I'm resolved, let's go for it. All right, here we go. And that ushered in what we call the passion of Christ. And we'll follow that the next couple of weeks. You know, we can say things like, well, the word strengthens you, the word helps you, the word builds your faith. But do you begin to see how it worked in Jesus' life? And you're a disciple of Jesus. And what have we said all along this series? Our whole goal is what? Is to be like our, our, our master, our savior. How are you strengthened? What kind of strength do you receive? What do you need from the Lord today? What'd you walk in with? What challenges, what difficulties? Uh, what trials are you going through? What's suffering? And, and will you follow the Lord there, taking it to, to God the Father? He says, rely upon him, trust in him, because he knows exactly what it is that you're going through. Just a couple of things to wind down before we close. And, and by the way, I'm just giving you a heads up. Today, I, I just think the response today, God wants us to, to make these requests known to him. And we're gonna make available some of the pastors and elders and other leaders. We're gonna just be available to connect with you in prayer up here in the front. Maybe you want some private time. Uh, we've got kneeling benches and I encourage you to use that. But God may be laying something in your heart that you just wanna kind of disclose and, and share outwardly. The Bible says if we'll agree upon these things, and that means the church, that we need each other for the faith building. Let's take it before the Lord. And we're gonna do that in a few moments. But some practical things. What do we take away from today? Today, maybe you've been praying, and I've heard people say this before, I feel like my prayers are getting to the ceiling, and that's about as far as they get, and you're wondering why. Now, you've heard me say this probably before, but just a little thing to tuck away in your memory. Sometimes when our requests are wrong, they're not lined up with the Lord, the Lord says no. I'm going to tell you that. He'll, he'll say no. I'm not going to do that. That's not my plan. Sometimes when the timing is wrong, it, it's not that it's, it's a bad thing, but, but it's just not the right time yet. He'll say, slow down, slow, go slow. If I'm wrong, I'm not in the right spirit, and there's some things he has to address right in here, he'll say, grow. And he'll use that pressure in those times for me to, to be transformed and changed a little bit more like him. But when all three come together, like it did in Jesus, they were all synced up now with the Father, and he says, okay, now's the time to go. Here's, here's what's gonna unfold, okay? When I read this this, this, uh, this past week, and I just started thinking, if I was to just deposit a couple of things to just take away from the Garden of Gethsemane as a follower of Christ, what do I learn there about Christ and his ways? I, I learned, number one, that effective crisis prayer is always preceded by a consistent daily prayer. We don't just go rushing into his presence in the crisis like the last resort, it's the last thing that, that I can do. I've tried everything else, but now I'm gonna go to pray. Friends, you know, I hope that's not what, um, what characterizes your prayer life. When you go there regularly and daily like Jesus did, it was his custom, it was familiar to him. I remember one person asked a question, uh, is your prayer life more like a spare tire or is it the steering wheel? Do you just go to it, you know, in the time when you gotta 
how to address the issue, or, or, or is it something that guides your life? Last night, a gal came and she said, I remember hearing uh, somebody challenge me along the lines and said, uh, is prayer uh, like a 911 call or is it a 1-800 call? Is it something you can go to freely and, and regularly and frequently? The second thing that, that I wanted to just kind of leave with you is prayer, the kind of prayer we see Jesus displaying here is a prayer that strengthens us for difficulties more than altering our circumstances. I cry out, Lord, change this. Change this situation. I don't like it. It's too hard. It hurts. It's painful. Uh, remove it from me. Is this not, not unlike Paul when he was praying, Lord, this thorn in the flesh, I don't really like this. And I asked three times for him to remove it. But God finally said, no, I'm not going to take it away from you. I'm going to use it in your life to actually keep you humble and keep you usable. You know, he changes the, 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 the perspective. He strengthens you for what he's going to keep in your life rather than change the circumstances or wipe those things away. So again today, as we, um, you know, we just tuck this away and we ask God, what, what are you saying to me? What, what burden are you carrying today? What heavy load did you walk in this morning with? And are, are you humble enough to just say, God, you know, I've been trying to take care of this on my own. I need to lay it at your feet. One thing is certain, a promise of God that he gave to you and to me is that you can cast your cares upon him because he cares and loves you more than you can imagine. And I hope you'll feel the freedom to do that. Amen? Amen. Stand with me. I'm going to pray with you, and our, our worship team's going to come and prepare to just lead, guide us through a, a, a kind of a quiet song, but if... If you feel inspired, um, come, just come up and we're going to pray together. doesn't have to be long. doesn't have to be drawn out, but we want to come alongside of you. And those prayer partners, elders, other leaders that are available, if you can kind of come up and, and just uh, along the front and just be available in the next few moments. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these times that we get to draw from you. Thank you for your word. It is a source of strength like we can't even begin to imagine and as we live with you, Jesus, in these moments, these intimate moments with the Father, and we put ourselves there, we realize you live inside of us. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that same passion, that same resolve to carry out your Father's will is something that we desire as your children. God, we fail so often, and we ask for your forgiveness today in those times that we stumble and the and that we allow fear to overwhelm us. But I pray God today would be one of those days that we just draw from you, and whatever challenge it is that has uh, come our way, that we can cast that care upon you, knowing that you are trustworthy and that we can rely upon you in these moments. You are our help. You are our guide. You are our comforter. You're our healer today. And we love you for that. So I just pray that your spirit uh, would just be powerful in this place, in these moments, as we respond to you as you call us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. You come forward if God's inspiring you to do that this morning, okay? We're available.